Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am pleased to welcome back to the show uh, right away my friend Jason Waters. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, thanks for doing this. We had a uh, really good response from the last episode you're on. Our, uh, uh, your, well, I shouldn't say our, your look at the, uh, the the disappointments, the surprises, and, and the best films of 2021. And uh, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't kick off 2022 without a with a, with a conversation about. You know, the first big movie to come out in 2022, and Absolutely. that, of course, is Paramount Pictures' Scream. Just Scream. Not just, not Scream 5. Yeah, just Scream, just like the Halloween reboot. Absolutely. Yeah, just so, Scream. So, uh, just to um, kind of give this episode some context, we're going to... I think we're going to give just an initial thought about the movie, and then we're going to segue into our thoughts on Wes Craven, who, uh, who did not direct this movie. Uh, he did pass away a few years back. Uh, and then we're going to kind of give our thoughts on the uh, the first four Scream movies, and then we'll get into a little more in-depth conversation about the new Scream. And just to reassure anyone who hasn't seen the movie yet, we will keep this spoiler-free for at least 90% of this episode, and we will give a spoiler warning when we do discuss the ending of the latest Scream film. But Jason, to kick things off, I'm just going to ask you, just in a broad term, your th- initial thoughts on the latest Scream movie. So... Initial thoughts, um, I really enjoyed it. You know, the, the first Scream directed by anyone other than Wes Craven, I walked into the theater thinking this could go one of two ways, either amazing or it could just go the direction of what everyone thinks Scream 3 went in, just disappointing. The first 30 minutes of it had me on the edge of my seat. I really, really enjoyed the action, the drama, and where I could see them taking the movie. Okay. All right. I My thoughts are, I think, a little more muted than yours on the film. More so than... I feel like it's a movie that I need to see a second time because I'm one of those people. Yes. We talked about M. Night Shyamalan and the twist. <laughs> yep. So, you know, with the, the formula that is a screen movie, which this movie does not stray from that formula, you know, I spend the entire time being a detective trying to figure out who did it instead of just sort of enjoying the moments. So, you know, and we'll, we'll give an official score at the end of this show. I'll say that I probably set my expectations maybe a little too high, but I'm not going to discourage people from seeing the film. And, and we'll leave it at that as far as my thoughts. Yeah, I, I would say the way most people judge the screen movies is the first segment. So what happens in that first segment? And spoiler free – this first segment stands aside from the rest of them. I'm going to agree with you. And this first segment, again, spoiler free, <laughs> does something that none of the other first segments does. And that's all I'm going to say about that. We'll get into that when we talk about spoilers. Yep. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that, you know, Wes Craven, you know, he had his, you know, he directed the first four. Uh, we obviously have to give credit to Kevin Williamson for writings, writing part one, two, and four. Yep. He was not involved in, Kevin Williamson was not involved in the production of this film. And he wasn't involved in the production of part three, which we'll get to in Although, a little bit. Although, yeah, I think he, was he executive producer? Just a, on a general. Yeah, I think, like, I, yeah, I think showed so. Showed up on a Tuesday and had a cocktail kind of. I think yeah, so. I think so. Yeah. I was like, hey, well, we're going to do this. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, sounds good. All right, you got an EP. Yeah, You're yeah, good. Exactly. Uh, because I stayed around to the credits just to, just to confirm that it wasn't a written by 
by so and so, so and so, and Kevin Williamson. It just said based on characters yeah. created by Kevin Williamson. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about Williams's writing style when we we get into the first screen movie. But if we're going to discuss the Scream franchise as a whole, I think we have to start with the director, and that is uh, Wes Craven. Absolutely. He directed, like I mentioned, he directed the first four films. So, not to put you on the spot, if someone stopped you on the street and said, "Jason, what does Wes Craven mean to you?" What would your response be? The first response would be horror movies. I grew up on, and I think we talked about this before. To me, Wes Craven, who I started off with, was Freddy Krueger. It was A Nightmare on Elm Street. And, you know, I'm, I, I was born in 1979, grew up in Ocala, and literally played, you know, Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street when I was like six years old. To me, he is the, the new Gen Z master of horror. And, the person that I always look to to bring out that next genre of of a horror classic. I, I guess I was born in '78, so that that I've got one year on you. But I <laughs> saw uh, uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. I believe it was 1985. It would have been on home video. It was something that my brother, <clears throat> who's a, a little bit older than me, you know, woke me up one Saturday morning and said, "Hey, hey, come watch this <laughs> tape," and and was traumatized. Oh, I mean, very severely so. traumatized, like so much so that I slept with my bedroom light on. For a couple of years. I, I still, to this day, if I ever pick up a, a regular telephone, I'm always worried there's a tongue yeah. that's going to come out and lick me. <laughs> I am not able to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one or the third one. Well, probably the second one, Alone in the Dark <laughs> at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. If it was just me, I, I just it's not something I choose to the do. blood factor alone, just it, it will give you nightmares. That is not yeah. the case for parts four. And five and Freddy's no, dead. Oh yeah. Further down the road it gets it gets a little it gets a little unbelievable. Um it it falls further into the routine of that same trend that eventually Scream calls out like, you know, this this is just a you know, the the formula, the standard. If if you do this, you die. And yeah. Yeah, yeah well said. But let's take a look at just real quickly. I'm gonna go through Craven's filmography real quick, because yeah. I have, with the exception of one movie on this list, I've seen all of them. In fact, longtime listeners, or if you're a new listener, you go back, uh, I couldn't tell you how many episodes, it's been a couple years, that uh, writer, director, and film historian Jim Hemphill and I have a reoccurring series called Icons, where we look at the filmographies of uh, uh, prestigious directors and actors, and we did an episode on Wes Craven, and, and Hemphill is by far the... Wes Craven expert. So I would defer to him for any complex theories on on what Craven was trying to do with each of his movies. But would it surprise you to learn that he got his start in the adult film industry? <laughs> well, given how much <laughs> sex and violence is connected after Psycho, no, it would not. <laughs> It was an interesting way to break into the uh, into the industry. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd like to get a shout out to uh, to my friend Patrick Bromley. He has a podcast called F This Movie, and he has a a series called Craven Craven, <laughs> and where him I and it. you know, it's it's a great it's <laughs> it's it. great. They're they literally I I don't know how many episodes they've done so far, but they literally go from each episode is dedicated to. A movie sold in his sold filmography. Right there. there you go. And they do talk about one of his adult films. I believe it's called The Fireworks Girl. 
<laughs> that uh, after listening to that episode, I felt compelled to find the movie. And it is not that difficult to find, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> there will not be a link in this episode's show notes to find Fire that. But a simple Google search will come up. The old you will find you will find it. And I will admit to watching about 20, 30 minutes of it because it is Is that all it takes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is one of the most stylistic adult films that I've ever seen. Okay. I mean, you take out the sex scenes, which are are not as plentiful as you might think. It, it's an adult movie, but it's a, an actual movie with a beginning, middle, and end, a plot, and it's incredibly stylistic. Well, yeah, before the 1980s, I mean, the adult industry was – it was a movie that had sex in it, not just a sex movie. Exactly. And this might be the perfect example of that. And, yeah. uh, I mean, don't be me wrong. It's <laughs> It was made for no money, but <laughs> – <laughs> but there's there's characters. He's, there's extras in it. There's everyone there, gets their start somewhere. Absolutely. So that's the fireworks girl, <laughs> and he directs it under a pseudonym. The pseudonym oh. his he doesn't go by Wes Craven. Are you ready for this? I'd love it. His pseudonym is Abe Snake. <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> Abe Snake. And I want to thank again. I want to thank Patrick Bromley to have this movie that's for great. bringing this to my attention. And uh, Patrick, of course, was. Created a call to action. I was like, I'm not sure if I believe this. I have to find out for myself. 1972, we get the release of his first feature film, The Last House on the Left, which I have seen a couple of times. Um, I don't know which versions I've seen because there are different cuts of this movie. Now, what's interesting about this movie is, from what I understand, he submitted this film to the Motion Picture Association of America, and it came back with an X rating. Oh, wow. And they say, you have to cut this, 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 and this out. And he said, okay, but never made the cuts. Never, yeah, never did. Yeah, never made no the cuts. No one ever bought – yeah. No, no, no. So, that's a challenging movie to watch. Have you seen The Last House on the Left? I have not seen the original. I have seen the remake and the – did not enjoy the remake. But, um, yeah, it the premise alone put in the 70s would be challenging yeah. enough to make. I, I saw the remake in the theater. And, uh, you know, without getting into, into too much detail, there's a particular scene which half the movie, half the theater walked out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. But like, it's it's brutal. It, it's brutal and it's completely unnecessary in, in that movie. And uh, The Last House on the Left is not um, – the original Last House on the Left is is darker, huh. and but it has more – some more implied stuff, whereas the remake shows you stuff that you don't need to see. But don't get me wrong. There's the 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 ending of Last House of the Left. Uh, spoiler alert for a movie, and I'm not going to spoil the ending. But basically, <laughs> I said spoiler, but I'm not going to spoil. Uh, mild spoilers for the ending. The premise of the film is that two teenage girls go to New York City to go to a concert. They try to score some weed. They find this kid who takes them up to his apartment. They're kidnapped. I don't want to get into the details of what happened to them. The, they don't make it. And the, the three killers are on the run and end up at the home of one of the girls that they, it was, it was just by pure chance that one of the girls that they, they murdered. Well, the parents find out and the parents exact revenge and it gets gnarly. It, 
Yeah. It gets especially the original one, but but I don't know which cut I've seen because there are different cuts of the film. But I've huh. seen it a couple times. It's it's interesting. It's okay. an interesting first film. I can't put a strong recommend on it, but <laughs> if you are a completionist, I mean, you should watch it. How about 1977's The Hills Have Eyes? I love that movie. I did not see that movie until probably mid two thousands when it came out on. On, uh, I, I think I actually bought it on DVD back then. So, and the remake as well. Which I've never seen. You've never seen the remake? I've never seen the okay. remake. I, I would prefer the original over the remake. I mean, um, I mean, just suspenseful, amazing, and that same deep dark that you expect from Wes Craven. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 1981 is Deadly Blessing. I've not seen that. Yeah, that is the, uh, that's the one. I said there's one that I haven't seen. And even though Jim encouraged me to watch it, I, I, I still haven't seen it. 1982 Swamp Thing. Love Swamp That's Thing. That's a great movie. <laughs> it really is. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a comic book movie, but it's, um, it's, it's got a great story to it. I and, enjoyed it. And you know what? Wonderful practical effects. Yeah, it yeah, really, it really does have that. That brings us to 1984, the movie that would basically cement the legend that is Wes Craven, of course. That is A Nightmare on Elm Street, which has been covered, pardon the fun, pardon the pun, to death on this podcast. So there's not much more I have to say about the movie except that it is the gold standard for 1980s horror movies, in it, my opinion. It establishes the the quote unquote slasher flick. Yeah, um, it's. That's the beginning of what a slasher flick becomes. Yep. Uh, 1985, you get The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. Now, what's interesting about this film is this thing was – the production was a disaster from the get-go. And they ended up recycling footage from the original Hills Have Eyes. And it's a complete mess and one that Craven completely disowns. I I, I have not seen it. It, it, you can skip it. Skip I mean, it, if it yeah. if it shows up on YouTube for free someday or something like that, you know, give it a watch just as a as an experiment and on what experiment on what not to do when making a movie. But it, it was a disaster. Then we're going to get into sort of the you know the pace of movies that he makes really picks up from that point. We get 1986's Deadly Friend, which is completely mismarketed if you look at the cover art if you watch the trailer this movie you are going to be convinced that you are seeing a completely different movie than the actual film that you see um have you seen it i have not okay so here's the here's the challenge to you okay i want you to watch the trailer for deadly friend which has a very young christy swanson in, in in the lead role okay Kind of in the lead role. I'm not going to say anything more than that, except uh, when you watch the film, you're going to be shocked. Is this kind of like the, the, the pig versus the trailer versus the actual, or is this worse than that? Ooh, I don't think you're going to be ready for what the actual plot of the film oh. is. Now, not in a disturbed way, but just in a completely like, huh, well, that's uh, not what I thought this movie was going to be about. Okay. Okay. So, but I'd be curious. So then we get into 1988's one of my favorite Wes Craven films, and that is The Serpent and the Rainbow. Oh, man, another one. That, that just, one's terrifying. That's, I, that's, this, you're hitting about the time when my parents got HBO. Yeah. And we they lived downstairs. We lived upstairs, all three kids. And, the, yeah, that's when that's when I started getting into the horror movies. I was about seven years old, eight when it hit HBO, and just 
nightmares abound from this one. I find that one to be almost as difficult to watch as a nightmare on Elm Street. It's in, but in a uh, different, in a different, in a different way. It's very, it's a tough one to get through. It really is. And and Bill Pullman is fantastic in the movie. Yeah. I, I, I still to this day, I have his eyes etched in my memory. Just that, that one scene where his eyes are glossed over looking up and just, yeah, yeah, definitely. Itches at your soul. In 1989, Wes Craven gives us what I think was maybe his attempt at creating a new horror movie icon, and that is Shocker. Is this the one with the death row? Yes. Execution? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And this is this has Peter yeah. Berg in the lead role. The the killer is a guy named Horace Pinker. Who is, uh, he's a, he's a TV repairman who has figured out a way to, uh, live after, to have life after death. I, Can, I think I made it about 10 minutes into that one and just. That movie has actually grown on me. I watched it really? about a year ago. It's very high concept. It was almost probably too high concept for the time that it came out. I do remember, I remember, I, what I remember more about that was the, um, I remember the cover of the VHS. The orange jumpsuit mm-hmm. and him just electrocuted. I would give it another try because okay. it, it, I'm gonna it, put that on my rewatch list. It deals with a lot of different themes. It deals a lot with our obsession with television. It deals with, I mean, there are dream sequences that are really well done. I, I think Got more of a society. I, I think the movie deserves a reevaluation. Okay, uh, it, I think it was ahead of its time. It did not do well. Theatrically, thus, we never saw another another version of the film. 1991, we get The People Under the Stairs. Ugh. Now, this is a movie that <laughs> I, I, I've rewatched a couple times in the past couple years. And you want to talk about Get Under Your Skin. I rewatched it last night after your recommendation that it, that it holds up. I remember watching it as a kid. You are 100% correct. <laughs> it holds up. There are, Ugh. there are, there are subtextual themes throughout that movie that is almost a condemnation of Reagan's America. Yes. You know, it's very, it's saying a lot about the haves and have nots. It, it's, it's, there's, it was of all of, I would say of all of the horror movies that Wes Craven has done or that come from the eighties, early nineties. This one speaks more to the current generation than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that one, that one is a strong, strong recommend. Now, the next one on the list is extremely important for the subject of today's episode because a lot of people will credit Scream that came out in '96 as the first movie to really have that sort of meta commentary and and to be self aware. And to know what movie it is and to, and to, to know that it's playing with the audience. Well, I will argue that Wes Craven had a rough cut of what he was attempting to do with 1994's Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is an incredibly meta movie. You have the, the actors who were in the original Nightmare on Elm Street playing themselves being terrorized by a real Freddy Krueger. The Heather Langenkamp realizing that she's, it's life imitates art, imitates life, and she's in the movie that she was trying to get out of. Correct. And it, 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 you are correct. It is, it would be the precursor to this series. And watching her walk back into that house, yeah, it, it is, 
it, it definitely reestablishes a, a turning point in the genre. I agree. And it was not as successful as they had hoped because it, it, it broke away like we talked about. It broke away from the tried and true tested formula of the Nightmare on Elm Street films because Freddy's Dead came out in, I think, 91. And when it was announced they're making a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie, I mean, I remember 94, I would have been 16. I mean, yep. this was the time. I was excited. This was the first Elm Street movie and, I saw in the theater. And Wes Craven was in the movie. He was in the movie. I mean, you know, talking to her and just watching him talk to her like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We're bringing Freddy back. And just seeing, you know, him building into that zeitgeist of becoming so popular that he has to exist. Yeah. And that that fact alone, I think, just fl- – it, it had to have flown – from that movie straight into screen. And it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I do recall one of the complaints being that there wasn't a high body count in the movie. If I remember correctly, and listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been five or six years since I've seen the movie, I believe there's only two on-screen kills in that movie, which is Heather Langenkamp's husband and then the babysitter, Julie. Yeah, but Am you I know- missing one? Uh, not that I can think yeah. of, but I mean, even in the original movie, the Nightmare on Elm Street, there were three. Uh, let's see. There was there was Tina, Rod, Glenn, and technically Nancy's mother. But uh, yeah, te- yeah technically, that's, that's a that's a half. That uh, so, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But oof, I I thought I've I thought it at the time, and I still stand by that I think. New New Nightmare is an incredible movie. It re- yeah, it really was. Can't say that about Vampire in Brooklyn. What are your thoughts about that film? That's divisive. People either like it or they don't like. People either like it or they don't like it at all. I, I was telling you earlier. I you know, I used to work at a video store, and after the movies went from new releases back to the shelves, they would sell the the posters. And Vampire in Brooklyn stayed in that. It was in the free <laughs> section. Like, please take this poster. For a good three months before I eventually just – I just snatched it up and I, I still have it to this day. It it was not great. No, and it was Eddie Murphy who was just in that – he had been in that I – don't, I don't want to say slump because I think – and I want to go off on a tangent here. But I think Harlem Knights, Bo- Boomerang, Distinguished Gentleman, I think those movies deserve a reevaluation, yeah. especially Distinguished Gentleman. I watched that about a month and a half ago. I really liked that movie. Yeah, it was good. I was I was surprised. It was directed by Jonathan Lynn, who also did My Cousin Vinny. Oh, really? And okay. and you know the thing about Jonathan Lynn, and he's got a real real eye for uh, real eye for realism, is what I was trying to say. But he's an eye for for how things really work, how court procedures work in My Cousin Vinny, how government works in Distinguished Gentlemen. And I thought it was a, a much better movie than I remember. But Eddie Murphy was on that slump. Yeah. Uh, was this was this before or after Pluto Mars? Oh, this is before. Okay. 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 So this is the this is the the peak before we get the, to that. The Vampire in Brooklyn re- will represent the the fir- first peak in his slump. <laughs> and by slump, I don't necessarily mean bad movies. Uh, I mean not financially successful films. Yes. He bounces back huge in '96 with the Nutty Professor. The Nutty Professor uh, bounces back huge, and then goes on a bit of a run. Doctor Doolittle. I and I then- rewatched Nutty Professor about a month ago, and I still to this day the the scene at the table. Oh, <laughs> I'm with with all of the clumps. 
just oh. it's one of the funniest ones ever. First of all, that's a master class in in filmmaking right <laughs> yeah, there. I mean really that's is. that's a master class. I mean, with, with the exception of the little kid, he's literally playing yes. every character. I mean, think <laughs> about <laughs> how do you how do you film that with the timing, the comedic timing? It's just it's brilliant. We're going to bypass the Scream movies because we're going to talk about this just a little in, in a moment here. So Scream and Scream 2 are made by Dimension Films, which was a, uh, which was the horror label of Miramax. Yep. So after the success of Scream, it's kind of like, I'm not going to talk about who's running Miramax, who ran Miramax at that time, but they basically went to Wes and said, you know, we, we need to do another one. We have to do another one. Kevin's on board and Wes kind of says, all right, I'll do it, but then you need to fund a movie I want to do. And they said they agreed. And that's where we get 1999's Music of the Heart, which is a very – it's not a Wes Craven movie. Have you ever seen Music of the Heart? I have, I have not. No. I'll just pull this off of uh, – best way to describe it, I'll pull it off of what it says in Wikipedia. It says, the film is a dramatization of the true story of Roberta Guspari. Portrayed by Meryl Streep, who co-founded the Opus 118 Harlem School of Music and fought for music education funding in New York public city schools. The film also stars Aidan Quinn, Gloria Estefan, uh, and Angela Bassett. It was director Wes Craven's first and only mainstream cinematic film, not in the horror or thriller genre, and is also his only film to receive Oscar nominations. Now, unfortunately... The movie had a $27 million budget. It was one of the biggest budgets he's ever worked with at the time. It only made $14 million. It's not a horror movie. It's not a thriller. It's a biopic. I can say I, I would not have ignored it because it's Wes Craven. I would have ignored it. I'm I'm not a a musical guy. When it, when it gets into that kind of genre, it's it's out of my purview. I've but. seen it, and it's, it's okay. fine. Yeah. Like, it's fine. Meryl yeah. Streep's good. Angela yeah. Bassett's great, you know. It's a good movie. I mean, it's just a, you know, it was right in that that period of time in the '90s when we were getting, you know, just high concept, you know, searching for Bobby Fisher type, yeah, 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 you know, <laughs> drama, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Finding it's Forrester, a, it's a filler. <laughs> You're the dog now. <laughs> <laughs> Putting the screen movies aside, 2005, we get two movies the same year. We get Cursed, which I'm a big fan of, actually. That movie's got a huge reevaluation. I've tried and tried. It it doesn't work for me. No, it doesn't. I've tried. It doesn't work for me. Uh, to me, in that to that, the action keeps going. Which I, when I'm when I'm watching a horror movie, I'm not looking for the next best best picture. I'm looking for something that keeps my attention. And in that one, it did, yeah. and I really enjoyed it. The next one on, that came out that year is Red Eye, which is really good <laughs> yeah and i want if, sure. if you have not seen red eye i want you to stop this podcast right now just hit pause Absolutely. you can pick it back up where you left off and watch an incredibly tight thriller it doesn't have it i mean the majority of the movie takes place on an aircraft it is, on a plane you it could have been easily directed by alfred hitchcock absolutely it, it's that good it's craven's best thriller yes hands down i don't 100%. think anyone's going to dispute that i yep. mean it is it is really really good uh 2010 would be his last movie that wasn't part of a franchise and that is my soul to take which you know yeah, it, yeah. i mean it's it gets the job done. Yeah, it's it's okay. It's like you know we're talking about with Cry Macho. Like, mm, 
you expect more, but you get what you get. Yeah. Like, it just, it's okay. It's all right. Yeah. It's all right. So that brings us to the Scream movies. Listeners, I apologize. We rambled on for about a half an hour when it comes to Wes Craven, but, you know, it's, it's important to set the stage. So I will just go ahead and tell you real quick when it comes to the original Scream movie that this was a movie that had, it opened modestly its first weekend and then ended up doing better each subsequent week. This was one of those strong word of mouth movies. I don't think I saw Scream until the fourth weekend that it was out, but it was one of those ones where you couldn't escape it. Everybody was talking about like, have you seen this Scream movie? And I finally went and saw it and was just, I mean, blown away is not the right word. I mean, I wish, you know, for the younger generation out there, I don't know if they're ever going to get an opportunity to experience what we'll call a game changing movie. And Scream was a game changing movie. Yeah, I don't, and in this day and age, it's going to be difficult to reach that kind of level because I think before this, I don't think I'm reaching here, but I think you've got to go back to Psycho to get something else that really just grabbed hold of a generation and just completely 180'd it to a new way of looking at things. I thought about Psycho, and I agree with you, and I'm going to add a couple more to that list. Okay. We're talking horror movies and horror movies only here, but defining horror movies that revolutionized the game, in my opinion, are Psycho from 1960, 1968's A Night of the Living Dead, 1972's The Exorcist, which I thought to this day is still one of the greatest horror movies, which one of the greatest movies ever made. Linda Blair, the, I mean, absolute queen of that movie. Makes an appearance in Scream. That is correct. You are correct. Then we're going to jump to 1978. There's two movies that come out in 1978 that I think are also are, are defining. One, of course, is Halloween. The other is Dawn of the Dead. Oh, yeah. Which, again, I, I'm a big fan of the first three Romero yeah. dead movies. Yeah. George Romero just he, – he's another one that he definitely – deserves to be in that same genre yeah and i halloween kicked off a lot of slasher films a lot of imitations a lot of homages and a lot of ripoffs and i know friday the 13th turned into this mammoth franchise but i don't think the first friday the 13th is that great of a movie that's i'm saying that i'm realizing you're wearing a camp crystal lake shirt (laughs) as but i think they evolved to better movies like i think friday the 13th part two is a far superior film to the first one 100 percent agree far superior i think that movie is that's one of my that might be my favorite in the entire franchise that is in in the vein of scream 2 where they compare sequels that are better than original yeah that is that should that belongs there and i think you and i i have not tackled the friday the 13th movies but at some point you and i should sit down and just discuss them all because i've seen them all multiple multiple times (laughs) yeah uh, and then, of course, 1984 is A Nightmare on Elm Street. These were these were all groundbreaking movies. But I agree with you that Psycho really kind of kicked it off. We have to go from 84 all the way to 96 to get to Scream, which uh, completely reinvented the genre for the better, in my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, so Kevin Williamson and, and listeners out there, I'm going to make this available. I actually did a making of Scream podcast episode about five years ago. I'm going to, I'm going to put it back up on the main podcast feed. I'd love that. Yeah. It is, I warn everyone, it's a little dated. And, you know, I, my style has changed a little bit. I'm a little, I talk a little slower on the <laughs> podcast now than I did back then, but it's still interesting. And, and, you know, the takeaway from that is that Kevin Williamson was a struggling writer, 
and he was inspired by a event that's actually has a personal connection to where we live, and that is the the Gainesville murders in 1990. And his name was Danny Danny Rollins. Da- Danny Rollins, yep. and uh, I don't want to get into what he did, but you can Google Danny Rollins and it was horrific. And Gainesville is only a half an hour from where we're and recording right now. One of the killings actually happened in Ocala. Yeah, here. yeah, absolutely. So he was inspired by that particular story and he wrote scream. But what he also did was transform the dialogue into nothing we'd ever seen before. And I watched scream about four days ago. I haven't seen it in 10 years and it is so sharp. The writing is so sharp and something we talked about, you know, when we weren't recording is what sets the original Scream apart from previous horror movies and maybe even from the rest of the series is the characters are so charismatic. Every one of them. Very much so. And that was like, it was refreshing to want to spend time with all of the characters. They're, they were so, you know, dimensional. There's not one person you just go, ah, if you just off that one, it's fine. I mean, even... Tatum, who's talking about, you know, if you pause at the right spot in this movie, you can see Tom Cruise's penis. Yeah. Like, I mean, you just – every person in this movie just has – they have something to give. They do. They do. And that – they, they attempt that with the subsequent sequels to varying degrees of success, yeah. in, in my opinion. But nail it in the first one. Very – yes. The, the movie was so – it was so self-aware. It was so – I mean, to use the term meta, which we'll talk about, especially when we get into the the latest Scream movie. Um, it was, and you said it, you said it perfectly when we, when we weren't recording, you know, to sort of set the timeline for the younger listeners out there, 1996, there's no social media. No. There's no smartphones. There's no Reddit. There's, there's no, no podcast. There's no podcast. Yeah. There's, there's nothing. Yeah. You wanted to know what time the movie was playing? Either you had the newspaper or you called the movie line. That was to it. Fi- to find out when the movies were playing. You didn't really worry about spoilers unless you had that jackass were, friend. Yeah, there yeah. were no spoilers except, yeah, exactly. That guy who went, hey, can you believe this happened? Yeah. Yeah. It's like I saw a Titanic. Don't fall in love with Leo. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's that's another reason why I don't think we're ever going to get an opportunity to experience something like that again. Yeah. If I'm going to go ahead and give a rating for the original Scream, we'll give it you know a rating of one out of ten. I mean, it's a 9 out of 10 for me. It's nearly flawless. Yes. So, next we get Scream 2, which I was extremely excited for. This was, this was like, I was, I was pumped for this film. And And did it live up or? It it did. Okay. This one, this one lived up for, and this was the day it came out. This wasn't four weeks after it came out. Yeah. And I, I remember going into it thinking, how do they top this movie? Well, how they top it is by letting you know that the original Scream exists, you know, through through the Stab movies. And this is going to become a reoccurring thing throughout the entire franchise. Um, I loved the opening of the film with Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith and that entire sequence. I mean, how, I mean, to circle back to the original Scream, it has a psycho connection. It does. Janet Lee in the original Psycho is billed as the star of the movie, and she is killed off. Spoiler alert, 40 minutes into the movie. Drew Barrymore, who is easily the biggest star in that movie, she's in it for 15 minutes. Well, and I, from, from what I remember, everyone lost their minds the same way that – because you, you didn't look at a Scream poster and see, you know, Nev Campbell forefront. 
you looked at a Scream poster and you saw Drew Barrymore front and center. She was Scream. And that's what drove so many people into the theaters. And the fact that literally 15 minutes in, she is not just dead, but dead hanging from a tree with her insides hanging outside. I mean, it it was that same psycho just what what I thought this movie was going to be is completely different. And the same thing happened in two. Like you see Jada Pinkett Smith and you think, you know, okay, we've got our, our first opening scene. I'm sure she's, you know, she's going to be, you know, fine. Or Omar Epps is going to be fine. And it's a double murder, you know, 10 minutes into it. And it's brutal. Oh, it's very, I mean, the bathroom scene with Omar Epps, like. That's brutal. <laughs> and then Jada Pinkett Smith going up on stage and everybody thinking that it's just part of the premiere of the Stab movie. Yes. I mean, it's just. And that's, that's where you get into that whole life imitates art, imitates life. And you go from the story to now we are making a movie about the story and just any anything and everything can happen at that point on. Yeah, all bets are off. Yeah. And that's one thing you come to expect is and you know now you know going into these movies that nobody's safe. And that's what's interesting about it. Now yeah. you you even go into Scream 2 thinking Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, you know, Jamie Kennedy, none of them might make it through this movie. And yes. that is also what really set this apart from from other conventional horror movies that that yes. these movies are literally commenting on. And and the fact that I don't think we need we said no spoilers on the the older movies. Jamie Kennedy does not make it out of this. No, no. And when so when he dies, that's when I finally realized like this is another one of those like main character dies halfway through the movies, and you start to think like. If if he's not safe, then yeah, it's correct. No one is safe and anything could happen. It creates real stakes. Yes. And that is something that is sorely missing from a lot of movies that come out today. And yeah. I'm sorry, I hate to keep bringing up the Marvel movies, but <laughs> when you announce when you announce that there's going to be Guardians 5, 6 and 7, you know Groot's going to be okay. <laughs> you know there's no stakes and I'm sorry everybody yeah, hates it when I say that. Exactly. But that's the, you know that's that's exactly it. So yeah, you go to the 20th movie in before you get a main character dying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um so basically, you know, it's it's our surviving cast are now in college. Yeah. You know, we introduce new characters. I wouldn't necessarily call Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette legacy characters. They're not going to be legacy characters and probably till 2011 Scream 4. Yeah. But we're, we're, we're following their journey a little bit, a little bit more. Wes Craven, because of the success of the first Scream is, you know, he, they're, they're really, it's really a hands off approach. He can do whatever he wants and he gets on a uh, conceptual level. He really spreads his wings. In this movie. And there is some some beautiful, beautiful well, shots the, in the, the film. The best part. So the best part of the first one was everyone realized they're in they, – they realized they're in a slasher movie. And, you know, Randy at the end of the first one goes into the, the rules for what happens in a slasher movie. And right out of the gates, you, you don't wait for, you know, the, the rules an hour and a half into it. Randy gives you the rules right away. And they start talking about the sequel right away. Like, here's what to expect from a sequel. And you know, coming out of the gates, like, the sequel's going to have, you know, a, a bigger body count. It's going to be gorier. You know, there's going to be things you don't expect. 
characters aren't going to survive. Characters from the first film are not going to survive. He foreshadows his own demise in that movie. And, but, but he does bring up a good point when he's in the film studies class and with Timothy Oliphant and, um, who I love, by the way. If you've never watched Justified, it's such Justified, a damn good yeah. show. I love that show so much. Yeah. He's amazing in Go. Which is another movie that nobody's ever seen except for me, I think. Um, I love Go. Go's amazing. Go's amazing. But he gets into the, the debate about a sequel's being a se- better than the original. Sequel's better than the original. So. And, and then it gets into the, well, you can't count that one because it's part of a trilogy. Part of a trilogy. So, which is where this one was headed. Like, well, yeah, Godfather 2 is better than Godfather, but it's, you know, Godfather 3 is out there. So you need a sequel that stands alone. Talk about aliens. They yeah, talk about. Yeah. They talk about Terminator 2. Yep. Arguably better than the first, but Absolutely. not necessarily. I don't know. Like, I, I, I really love that first Terminator film. We, we could go down a serious rabbit hole about sequels, but I will say The Godfather Part 2 is a, is a masterpiece oh, of yeah. a movie. And yeah. if you've never seen The Godfather movies, please watch the first two. You're, yeah. you're not, you're not going to be don't disappointed. Worry about the, third. Yeah. the overarching theme of the original Scream is that Nev Campbell's mother was murdered. And without getting into spoilers for Scream 2 and eventually Scream 3, you know, her, her mother's murder does play a subsequent role in motivations of the killers. Or killers, plural. It, it sets all the events in motion. It does set all the events in motion. Um, I found Scream 2 to have a very satisfactory ending, although it's the first time that I kind of called the killer without saying who it is. I kind of figured it out. But can, can we do spoilers on this? Uh, God, yeah. For Scream 2? I mean, spoilers for Scream 2, spoilers for a movie that came out 25 years ago. All right. If you, if you don't want to hear it, just stop right Fast now. forward two minutes. So this is Miss Voorhees. Yeah. It's Billy Loomis's mother along with Mickey, the – The Quentin Tarantino-obsessed crazy- film student. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So you get the, you get the Friday the 13th vibe in there. It's the mother wanting vengeance, which is another slasher theme another, across the board. Another slasher trope. Absolutely. Yeah. So Kevin, Kevin Williamson was, uh, he wrote the screenplay for the first two. Um, he was off writing some other screenplays when Miramax was like, Oh, we need another one. <laughs> we need another one. We got to strike while the iron's hot. And. He turned down Scream 3. He he gave them some notes on, you know, one of the things that Kevin Williamson did was he had actually wrote notes for a trilogy. You know, this is kind of how he said he set his plans in motion. You know, this is after the first Scream, this should happen. And then after the end of the third Scream, this should happen. They hired a writer who initially wrote a screenplay based on those notes. But eventually that was tossed out and they just rewrote the whole thing and it had to be filmed on location in Los Angeles and thus Scream 3 takes place in Los Angeles. And it's the one movie of the tro- – of the I keep saying when I say trilogy. It's the one movie of the franchise. I call it – that it, to me it's the trilogy. It is the trilogy. It's the trilogy because that's – it's built that way and it – this movie is – this movie is all about being the final movie of a trilogy. Correct. It's the most disappointing of the three. It, it is. Yes. And oh. I I hate to be that naysayer. I actually liked Scream 3. I didn't hate it. I just – it's the most disappointing. No. If, if they had picked someone else to be the villain, like the, the actual story of it um, – and again – this, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who has not seen Scream 3 from 2001. 
or two. Yeah, yeah, right around that time period. Yeah. Um, you find out that the killer is Sydney's half brother, and that the reason he's doing all of this is the fact that his mother refused to accept him. I mean, motives in this entire series become, you know, up for review, but. As far as a story goes, the story was – the background was great. The delivery was yeah, – it wasn't great. It, it's, it, it gets very convoluted. Yes. You find out that Sydney's mother was an actress. You know, yeah. just – we need to see a movie about Sydney's mother. Right. Can we see that movie? Yeah. Because this lady has lived a life. Well, and I think, you know, what Randy says – so Randy, who dies in the second one, comes back to do a, hey, if this – Crazy shit is happening again. You know, he gives you three rules for what's going to happen in the, the conclusion of a trilogy. And one of them is the past is going to come back to bite you. Like whatever you thought was good in the past, it's not good. It, it, it will rear its head and come back. And that will be the repercussions that you face. Scream 3 was successful. They were all successful movies. It was it was diminishing returns yeah. each, each time. Like we talked about, there was a, a huge gap, about a 10-year gap between Scream 3 and Scream 4. And in that 10-year gap, my, how the world had changed. <laughs> because even in Scream 3, we're talking cell phones are a thing, but not smartphones. Internet is still not up and running. Social media is still not up and running. And Wes Craven's last movie would be one that Kevin Williamson returns to to write. And now Kevin Williamson is he's writing a whole new world. Now there's social media, now there's cell phones, now there's you know webcams, now there's vlogs. there's there's vlogs, <laughs> you know. I excitedly saw Scream 4 in the theater opening day. Oh yes. And had a blast I with the it. movie. It I, it's awesome. And I watched it Yesterday, Saturday morning, I watched it. We're recording on a Monday, just for some context. Um, I watched it on Saturday morning and had a blast. Well, the, the thing that I love so much about it is, um, and or spoiler alert for this Scream 4 conversation, it so much follows one character that you're rooting for who turns out to be the killer. And it just, it turns again in a slasher film that's supposed to follow that same, you know, one, two, three story, it, it turns it on its head again. It does. It and does. It's great. And it's, again, I guess we can stop saying spoiler alert. I think, I think people, yeah. people have figured it out yeah. by now. We will keep Scream. This is 2011, so. <laughs> we will keep the Scream movie, the new one, yes. spoiler free, I promise. Yes. But it's, it's, so it's Sydney's cousin. Yes. And, and this is a Scream for a new generation. This is where Sydney, this is where they all, the, the original characters now become the quote legacy character. So this yes. is no longer, you don't think this is no, this is no longer Nev Campbell's story. This is now her cousin's story. And the fact that she ends up being the killer, again, subverts expectations very yes. smartly. And um, they, they, they call it a, uh, at this point, it's called a shriekwell. A shriekwell. Or, or a scream make. A scream make. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> and then um, my favorite character in the movie was Kirby. Yes. Uh, Hayden Pentieri. Pentieri, yeah. She's phenomenal. She is. Now, there's there's rumors that she may have actually survived. And that there's is a lot there's, of there's a little Easter could have survived. There's a little Easter egg in the new screen movie that if you uh, that if you look very very closely when they're watching 
when a character is watching a YouTube video, one of the suggested videos says, Kirby, how I survived. And ah. it's like, I mean, it's, it's a blink and you miss it one. Well, so, it's another one of those like stew from the original. Yep. He appears apparently in two and four in the background, but it's never said that he actually died. Yeah. No, you're right. So it's possible. Yeah. Any final thoughts on Scream 4? I, I think it's one of the one of the better one one of the better um, sequels. So my final thought on Scream 4, and I think it's it's my favorite quote. So it starts off with the two different stab. Every one of these starts off with a you know, somebody dying or, you know, how it how it how the, the thing is gonna gonna go. Scream four, you get the intro to stab six and stab seven. Correct. And my favorite quote, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read it because I, I wrote it down from Anna Paquin of Stab Seven. Stab seven, that's correct. <laughs> is this is the death of horror right here in front of us. A bunch of articulate teens sit around and deconstruct horror movies and Ghostface kills them one by one. It's been done to death, the whole self-aware postmodern meta shit. And then she gets stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> My favorite part of Scream 4 is just watching that intro and seeing them literally ridicule what they are doing and how they are doing it. And then she just gets murdered. It's brilliant. It's <laughs> It's so well done. Yeah. So then we have another 10-year gap. Basically 10 years. This movie got pushed. It got pushed because of the pandemic. It was supposed to come out in 2021, supposed to be 10 years afterwards. So I'm going into this film, I think, like I said, probably with higher expectations than I probably should have set for myself. I've always said, if you go in with no expectations, you're very rarely disappointed. But I've liked the Scream movies. In some cases, I've loved the Scream movies. So I was looking for something that was going to be, you know, refreshing, you know, smart, topical, and definitely self-aware. I'll, I'll give the I'll give my negative points first about the movie. Okay, is wait is this our spoiler alert? No, we're not doing spoilers okay, yet. We're not doing spoilers. Yet. All right. The new characters we get we have to break this into two parts: the legacy characters and the new characters. Yep. I didn't find the new characters to be of. I think they lacked the charisma of even the characters in Scream Four. Yes, there wasn't a Kirby for me in this yep. film. Casting was an issue. Casting, I think casting was a big issue. And then when it comes to the legacy characters. With the exception of David Arquette, who's I think is great in this movie. I think he's perfect in this movie. You almost didn't even need to have Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox no. in this movie because they're barely in it. They they could have easily you could have easily pulled in one or the other, but not both. Yeah. They did not need to be in this movie. Nev Campbell seemed more on board. Courtney Cox, in my opinion, and I mean I don't know the particulars of her her agreement. Maybe she was under contract. I don't know. She did not even seem like she wanted to be in this movie. No, she was there to wrap up the whole Dewey and Gale Weather story. That yeah. was that was literally her her function in the movie. Now, on a positive note, some positive things about the movie. Again, this is not directed by Wes Craven. It's directed by the duo that did a fantastic little movie that came out in 2019 called Ready or Not, which, which I have not seen any of their past movies, but I am dying to now. Oh, you haven't seen Ready or Not? I have not. Oh, I can't wait. Listen, text me when you watch that movie. I saw that in, you know where I saw that? The Marion Theater. Really? Across the street, back when they st- still showed first run movies. Yeah. And I did an episode about it. Right, you know, I did a right out of the theater episode of it. And Ready or Not is is awesome. Oh, I, I researched them 
as, as much as I could. And I was so interested. So I'm dying to see what they've previously done. Because well, this, this first one that I saw was, I mean, a, an amazing directorial debut just for me. They're above competent directors. They're, they're good. They know what they're doing. Yeah. And, and they do a really good job with setting up suspense. And that's another thing I want to talk about this movie is they subvert your expectations when it comes to sort of the jump scares and stuff like that the, through the use of music. And, the, and they, they really do a great job of setting up tension. Although I think, yeah, you, you had texted me. You saw this movie before I did. Yes. And you had said, you know, basically be prepared. This is the goriest and, and most violent of the films. Well, I, I think you set my expectations way too high. I think I was expecting something far worse. I found it to be kind of on par with, really? with the rest of the films. Uh. With the, with the lone exception, I'm just going to say without giving, without giving it, uh, it away, there is a scene involving a knife stabbing in the neck, which is, Reminiscent uh, of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and uh, that was that was the one where I was like, oh. that's the one where I had to turn away from. I'm like, I, I've never had to turn away from a, a killing in Scream until this one. That was the lone exception. The rest of them, well, well, well yeah. Well, well, delete that one. For I, uh, yeah, um, for those who don't know, he just said a name that I'm gonna. I just <laughs> edited it out. I'm sorry, you're gonna miss that one. The dialogue was not as snappy. As a Kevin Williamson film? <clears throat> no. But at the same time, this movie was above competent. Like, I, I just want everyone to know, like, I'm, it, if I had to rank the Scream films right now, and I haven't sat down with pen and paper, I would go Scream, Scream 2, Scream 4, this new Scream, and then Scream 3, as I think that's the way I would rank them right now. A hundred percent. I, if, just discounting what Scream did for the entire genre, my favorite of the Scream movies is Scream Two. If I, if you were to tell me you you can only pick one to watch forever, it's Scream Two. However, you are correct. It's one, two, five, four, three. I mean, okay. I I really liked this requel, and I think I I, th- I said at the beginning like this one begs a rewatch. Now that I know. How the yeah. movie ends. I spend too much time in my head going, mm, that's a little suspicious. Uh, is there- Wes Craven was really good at eliminating foreshadowing. That was one of his strong suits with the screen movies that he directed. I wasn't sure how these directors were going to handle foreshadowing, if there was going to be any foreshadowing. And uh, there was a little bit in this movie. There yes. was a little bit. Yeah. Um, but overall, I mean, I'm giving this a recommend. Oh, 100%. Absolutely going to give this a recommend. And I'm still, I guess I'm still on the fence about where I would rate it. I don't know just yet because I need, it It, it begs a second viewing. It, do, it does. I would say to me, it's a solid B to B plus. The brutality of it is outside of, you know, when we get into some of those, the, the spoiler discussions, it goes way above and beyond anything we've seen before. Let's get into spoilers. Okay, let's get All right, into let's, spoilers. Let's get into spoilers. So if you have not seen the new Scream movie, you want to go ahead and just hit pause on this conversation because we're going to get into a little bit more of what happens in the film. Again, the movie's out in theaters right now. I understand if you're apprehensive about going to the movies right now, given the current climate that we're living in. <laughs> Here in town, Jason and I, there are there are two competing movie theaters in town now. There's the old Regal Cinema, which 
most of my movie theater rant episodes took place at. And then there's this new beautiful theater called Epic, which has got the big lounging, reclining, you know, lazy boy chairs. Everyone goes to Epic Theater, so we just go to Regal. And uh, we don't have to worry about coronavirus because – we're usually the only ones in the theater. Exactly. On a, I went on a Friday at 2 p.m. and I was the only one there. I went at on Regal. I went on a Saturday. Excuse me. I went on a Sunday, which is one one p.m., which used to be prime time. Yes. And uh, in a theater that has a posted seating limit of 278 seats, there were four people, including myself, and there was definitely six feet of separation <laughs> yes. between between us. So. Go see it on the big screen if you have the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, I've seen every screen movie in the theater. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why I jumped at the opportunity to see this one in the, <clears throat> I wanted to. So, spoiler alerts for this movie moving forward. We're not going to say spoiler alert for the rest of this episode. We're yeah. done saying that. I promise. What does this movie do differently than any other screen movie? All right. So, Scream the original with Casey Becker answering the phone and then getting slaughtered. This one, you get you get Tara answering the phone in the same kitchen and the same kind of – like you could almost put them side by side and watch them move along. What happens to Drew Barrymore is she gets psychologically damaged and then eventually murdered. She runs outside and then gets – she gets stabbed and then gets killed and then, you know, gets put up. This one – she, she gets stabbed several times. She gets stabbed through the hand, and they show the knife going through her hand. And then they stomp on her foot. And break her and foot off. Break, break her ankle. Break you know. her foot. And then continue to stab her. That's one thing I will say about this movie. There's a lot of stabbing in this movie. There's a lot the, of stabbing. More stabbing than I've seen in any other movie. Like, there's continuous stabbing. Yes. But... So what sets this apart? Number one, the, and, I, and I think this is interesting, talking about the opening scene, is, you know, the the ghost face. You know, I want to play a game. Let's, you yeah. know, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, basically wants to do trivia. Well, she gets mo- all the questions right, except yes. for the very last one. Yes. Whereas in the original one, Casey Becker, she, she gets, you know, who was the killer on the Friday the 13th? But Jason, it was Jason. Oh, it was Jason's <laughs> mother. But she's getting the questions right because she's Googling the answers. Yeah. And it's awesome. But- <laughs> What sets it apart is she survives. She survives it. And just her character alone, you're like, all right, after watching that brutality, you're like, well, at least she's in a you know hospital bed and you know nothing else bad is going to happen to her. And it's just starting for her. And then after it gets terrible. <laughs> after you get the the scream logo on the screen, you get the same you know, crane shot down that Wes Craven famously did basically in front of the high school. And you get a, a reimagining of the kids sitting outside talking. So we get, we get an introduction to all the characters. Yeah. So you, again, it's almost the exact same intro to scream of these people sitting here. There's a, you know, a, another character that gets um, introduced that someone dated and has just shown up unexpectedly. So you get an, an additional suspect that yeah. is, Sitting right there. Which, can I say, nothing. They did nothing with they that did character. They did nothing with that. And they it did was, nothing with that guy. It could have gone so much different. Like, that. 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 that's the one that it was Stu Mocker's cousin. Yeah. I think it was, or nephew. And to take a legacy character's, you know, role like that and just... 
But his death, his death was interesting. It was like a little, just a little prick yeah, on the uh, carotid artery. I kept waiting for like a violent explosion. It was like, boop, just nope. gives a little, just a little, <laughs> little stab in the neck, and he's just, he just bleeds out. Yeah. Oh, it was brutal. Yeah. So then you get Tara's sister, estranged sift sister, uh, along with uh, Jack Quaid, yes, Dennis Quaid, and Meg Ryan's son, which. I called it. Right out of the gates. I was like- I called it. I was like, come on. He's definitely- It's got to be. Yeah. And then you've got the girl that I recognize from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Her name is, uh, is it Mikey Madsen? Mikey Madsen. Mikey Madsen. She plays Amber. Yes. And uh, she has the brutal death in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> I suspected her right away. So I suspected Liv to be the killer because she was the one who had a relationship with Stu Mocker's nephew- and then throughout the rest of the movie, she's one of those characters that really doesn't appear that much. So you assume, okay, well, we've got all these main characters that are part of the original story, and she's just in the background, but she pops up whenever there's a big event happening. So I assumed it was her. Absolutely. I figured it was Jack McQuaid and, and her. And I love the poster. The poster for Scream literally says, the killer is on this poster. <laughs> of course, Ghostface is on the poster. Yeah. Of However, of all, of all five Scream movies, of four out of the five, there's been two killers. That's correct. So it's got to be two of them. It's, it's got to be two. So just, just going through all the characters again real quick here. So the legacy characters, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette. So I guess we have to talk about Dewey. Yeah. So Dewey sets... You know, they, they go and visit Dewey, and what I, what I really appreciated about this is as they introduce you to Dewey, he again is just, you know, he's, he's Dewey. He's got an unrequited love for Courtney Cox, and he's got pictures of her in the house. He's watching her on TV on her, you know, Good Morning America show, and you assume that he's been left behind again like poor, sad little Dewey. And they go to to talk to him and ask him to, you know, join them. You know, the killer's back. You've been involved with the last four. You've got to help us. And you can just tell he's he's he doesn't want to be there. No, but it's 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 brilliant it really because talking is. about foreshadowing. Because Sam, it's brilliant because Sam's there with Jack Quaid, you know, Richie, her boyfriend, and. Immediately, Dewey goes in detective mode and goes, well, how long have you guys been together? Uh, six months? It's probably him. It's probably him. It's probably him. Which I guess there is some foreshadowing there. I should talk about, you know, not picking up on it. But but Dewey's – he's he's so burnt out on this, but he still knows the rules. He still yeah. knows how this works. Well, and, he, and he changes the rules too because he says – he's like, number one, never trust the love interest. Yep. Just points it out right there. And he says, number two, it's – always connected to something in the past. Yep. Something in the past, which in this one, I don't really think counts. No, it's so, I mean, it's a stretch. This is where, this is where my, it, what could have been an A gets to that B level. Um, but his third one is the killer is always attached to the group of the first victim. So whoever that first victim is, which was, um, Tara, Tara, it's it's someone who's attached to them, which of course it is. It is. But yeah, I, I mean, I honestly felt like, well, you know, I'm sure we'll get into the motives later on, but um, yeah, that seeing Dewey just sit there 
drunk at 9 a.m. and just say, you know, this this guy's suspect and yeah. And then so Tara's sister Sam comes back. They've been estranged. She brings her boyfriend Richie, played by Jack Wade. They meet with Dewey. They want his help. He initially says no. He then looks at some pictures of Gail and you know he texts he texts his sister Sydney Nev Campbell and her first appearance and says Ghostface you know says you know he's back. He texts Gail and says Ghostface is back. And then text, hope you're doing well <laughs> with a smiling face emoji. Smiling face. <laughs> so, and then they have the, they have the meeting. Then yeah. they call, they call the meeting of, uh, Tara's friends and it's Sam, Dewey, Richie and Tara's friends. And it's in, uh, Randy's memorial home theater because, yeah. because it's the, um, it's his nephew, his niece and nephew. His niece, yeah. It's his niece and nephew who are twins. Yep. And this is where Dewey, Starts talking about it, and then you get um, you get Mindy stand up and explain the rules of a a requel. A requel. Now, what's a requel? I it's love a it. reboot it's- and a sequel rolled into one. It's a requel, yes. and she nails it. Yeah, it's the same thing with Halloween that we talked about it yeah. before, um, which she says in the movie, just yes. like Halloween, just like Star Wars. It's a it's a it's a reboot and it's a sequel. But it's got the legacy characters of the original. Like what we were talking about with Fast and the Furious. Yeah. Like eventually you'll get the requel with Dom and Liddy's kids, you know, out there. I love dealing cars. I love when Mindy goes, and you get the legacy characters and she points at Dewey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, I mean, that was, that was smart. Like it I really was. I, I really, really appreciated that. Although I think the movie went a little overboard on, on some of the meta stuff, uh, a little bit, but. I think more the more we're talking about it, the more I might be relaxing my thoughts on that because it was it was interesting. It harkened back to the original though, and I appreciated that because it wasn't it wasn't people it it wasn't a scream three where people were just suppositioning like you're the killer, you're the killer. Like, well you must be the killer. Well it has to be you. Well that happens a little bit it, in this movie. It, it does, but also um there's there's some there's some thought behind it. Yeah. And eventually, everyone, you know, just kind of says, "Well, it's got to be Dewey." It's got to, <laughs> and Dewey's like, "Well, that just hurts," <laughs> um, and he gets up and leaves. The um, the scene with Wes, Wes is the guy that's got the frosted tips, which I thought was really a callback to the 1990s. And there's even a reference. Sam makes a reference to to his hair. Yeah, you know, nice hair. And the 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 Wes of. Wes Craven. Uh, Wes Craven. And then yep. Wes's mom is uh, Deputy – well, it says de- – is Sheriff Judy Hicks. Yeah. Uh, um, deputy in number four. Uh, yeah, deputy number four. So, there's the callback to to the uh, to the Scream 4. That's one of my favorite sequences in the movie. Uh, and you didn't you – didn't, I thought that was brilliant. So, I thought it was brilliant how they set up her death. So, here's what – here's where this definitely goes to a different level. Um Never before in any of these death sequences has it been a mother watching out for her child's death. And being a parent like that, to me, thinking about them, like someone being in my my child's house, killing them when I can't do anything about it. And I'm the sheriff of this town. Like I could call anyone and everyone, but I still can't save my kid. Um, that was, that was the most frightening scene for me. Yeah. It was, it was really terrifying. And the way she just, like, she's just 
driving and she just kicks on the lights, turns around. And there's one point she's, she's going fast and then she steps on it and goes even faster. Yeah. Like it's just, but, and, but it was just, it was, it was to set her up and she comes running up to the door and then just gets it. Yeah. Oh, and then you think maybe Wes is going to get. A pass. You, I thought because his name was Wes, I thought maybe he's going to survive. Maybe this is a little yeah. homage to Wes Craven. Well, what I what I loved is you know, in those I forget which movie it was, just mentions like you know, someone's going to close the freezer door, and of course the killer is going to be behind the freezer door, and you know everyone's waiting for that, and this sets it up like four times. Like yeah, he, he opens the pantry, and then the music plays like dun dun dun, and you think that he's going to close the pantry. And the killer is going to be right there. And it's just, it's not. And it happens so quick. And, you know, we talked about this before the spoiler free, the knife through the neck. Oh, and he does have the most brutal death in the He's movie. He's got the worst death. And, and, and it's the saddest one because you're rooting for him. Like he called Sam to come back in. He's, he's the most prepared. He's the Randy. He's got the taser and he's got the pepper spray and he puts it all down because he's in his house and he's safe and his mom's the sheriff and he takes a knife through the neck. And and when I said referencing the Saving Private Ryan, I'm referring to uh, Adam Goldberg's scene uh, in, in, in Saving Private No, 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 no. no, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. I I I was I'm literally holding my neck. I know. Like, it's, it, it defensively, like holding my neck during that scene. It was so brutal. It's one of the best and worst deaths in all of Scream. It, it really is. So then this brings the legacy characters all back to town, all back to Woodsboro. Yeah. Nev Campbell's back. Courtney Cox is back. This is where we find out that Gail and Dewey, you find out what really happened to the relationship because he, he proposes to her at the end of Scream 3. Yeah. And so they're married in Scream 4. Come to find out that, you know, she got the opportunity, the job of a lifetime to host this talk, this morning talk show in New York City. And he went with her and he made it about a month. And I guess he just, it, it didn't work for him. So he left. And he said he left overnight without saying, like, without yeah. saying goodbye. Like, so he just up and left. Yeah. So, so you, you start off feeling really bad for Dewey, which you still do because it's Dewey. But then it's like, oh, I can see how this ruined you. Like you're you're the one at fault. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you realize there's still a lot of feelings between the two of them. Uh, then we get to you know, the sheriff is dead. So Tara, who was attacked at the beginning of the movie, oh, this is where I just get this is where it gets wrong for me. She's in the hospital. She's had a deputy overseeing her, looking after her this entire time. But now the sheriff's been murdered. So all the cops, understandably. All of the police officers in that town are converging on the sheriff's house because that's their boss, right? And there's a, a throwaway line. Well, if you're here, who's watching Tara? Yes, exactly. And that, that brings Sam and Dewey. They race to the hospital. And I mean, this is elements of Halloween too, you know, yes. with Jamie Lee in the hospital, you know, trying to get away. Uh, well, and what I really loved about this too is you get a scene of her in the hospital watching TV and what's on TV it's Dawson's Creek. It's Dawson's Creek. Which was created by Kevin Williams. Exactly. And it's showing um uh Vanderbeek and uh uh Peter, what's his name? Uh, uh Jeremy Jackson. Jeremy Jackson. Yeah. Showing Jeremy Jackson, who was actually in Scream 2. Yes. <laughs> um and I just thought, like, what a great little throwback moment. And you I start thinking, I'm like, no, no, no. She was just stabbed multiple times yesterday. You can't you can't come back after her. Like that's not that that's never happened before. 
you can't go after someone who's been well. I mean, in Scream Four, they go after Sydney, but it just, that whole that whole scene just that really ruined me. Like I, I was emotionally she, wrought after that. She she uh, she wheels out of the room and sees that there is a deputy that was looking after her, and he's his had his throat slit, and she smartly goes for his gun. And it's not it's there. It's not there. Uh, and then enter. Oh, it was it was perfect. Then you see Ghostface just come come down the hallway, and it's like Halloween too. Just uh, gets on the phone with Sam, and it's one of those ones where um, who else was in the hospital? Because it was you got to choose. She had to choose between. Oh 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 oh! I'm sorry. And Richie, it was R- Richie. Richie gets to the hospital. Richie gets to the hospital first. Ghostface attacks both Richie to pick between and Tara, and Sam has to pick between her pick sister between boyfriend or her boyfriend. And, yeah. and Ghostface is just, you know, really giving it to her. The fact that you even have to choose, you know, your sister over a guy you've barely been with, like that should, that should speak volumes about who you are. And she's yeah. like, well, I'm just stalling for time. <laughs> and the, the elevator opens up and fires some shots. And this is where, uh, you know, they, they shoot Ghostface a few times. They're going to leave. Dewey says, I got to, I got to shoot him in the head. Got to go back. Got to go back. Yep. And then it's, uh, Dewey has a, uh, what I think like I got to go back to scream two, which was, um, Randy's rules. It was so I can I gotta find my my note on that. It was Randy explaining what the most important rule of a sequel was. And it was no matter what, don't ever, ever and then it just fades away. Because Dewey asked him another question. But in one of the one of the um trailers for the film, they show that, which is never trust the killer's dead. Yeah. And it's Dewey who interrupts him to begin with on that. And Dewey goes back and just gets gutted. He does. It's one of the, it's one of the worst. But here's where I have an Ugh. issue. Here's where I have an issue. Okay. Ugh. This is where I have an issue. This is where some continuity bothered me. But I only came up with this after the movie was over. Yes. So Richie's with Sam yes. and Tara. So I'm to believe that little Amber, who's the other killer, is the one that took Dewey out. Amber, who I actually went and I am DB'd, but even still, she's five foot one. Yes. Yes. Maybe 120 pounds dripping wet. And she takes down a six foot Dewey and not just stabs him in the front, but the back and then just fillets him like a fish. I just, I, afterwards, same thing as you, I could not see. I, I just went back and went, there's no way. Yeah. Like, it should have been the opposite. Amber should have been there with Tara, and it should have been Richie. Like, if they had, if they had gone that direction. But, you know, you know, closed. in the moment, you don't realize it. Yeah. You know, there's some plot holes, obviously, that you're going to uncover after the movie's mm-hmm. over. It's not, it's not going to be as airtight as you want it to be. But that was one of the first things I thought about when it, when it was revealed that it was Richie and Amber were the two killers. Yeah. So, so now we have uh, Sam saying to Richie and Tara, we're getting out of this town. Yeah. We're, we're going to go. We got to go. Get the fuck out of here. Gail and Sydney are like, no, you can't go. You can't go. We need you. Now we really need you basically as bait. Yeah. You know, they say it without saying it. We need you to stick around. They leave. <clears throat> they say, fuck this. We're out. We're going. 
through a series of circumstances involving an, a lost inhaler, <laughs> Tara ends up back at uh, Amber's house, who's having a memorial slash party for Wes. And, and and it's Amber lives at Stu Mocker's old house. Old house, which you don't realize until it's announced. But I Well, was- I think anybody who's, you know, so for me, I purposely did not look at any of those the trailers, right. I, I I tried to stay away from this one as much as possible, and as soon as that hit, I was like, "That's Stu's house." Like, yeah, okay. that is Stu's house, one hundred percent. I didn't pick up on it right away. <sighs> Although the basement, when they went into the basement, I was, like, the, yeah. I was like, "Oh, wait a second, I've seen this before." Yeah, and then this is just basically the the finale of the film, which yeah. has goes all over the place. I had a great time with. I, I'll admit, I had a great time with the third act of the movie. I did too. So being the only person in the movie, like I had my phone out and I was writing down like number of attacks, number of deaths, number of, you know, near deaths. And by the time I got to this, I, I'd never, I couldn't pick up my phone again. Like from the time they start this sequence to the time it ends, it is literally action. I mean, it is action packed from start to finish. And then you, you realize the, the motivations this time around is, you know, it's, that's, that's the thing I have the problem. Like I, you know, the whole, it's the millennium, you know, or the Gen your, Z generation, yeah, you know, father, we, you know, your mother slept with my father and I just, I couldn't get behind the motivation and the motive on this one. I, I, I wish there was something else to it. I wish there was a a stew connection that drove somebody to it or a because of you, I had to do this. Yeah. This was literally we didn't like the last movie. We really liked the first one. So we're trying to do our own requel. And and they're talking about how the stab movies they mean yeah. so much. The fandom in the stab movies means so much. And it gets into sort of this toxic fandom debate. That's, and yeah. And and their motivation is that stab eight was awful. And it, it and there's you see little sequences where in stab eight, Ghostface has a flamethrower and just, you know, they said it completely broke all the rules, which which happens. It has been happening in real with real movies out there. Yeah. People get upset that it doesn't follow I mean, the same formula. F9 where they're going to space. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's like this reason why the last Jedi was so diverse because it didn't follow the Star Wars formula. Yes. You know, we and 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 so we've got to bring JJ you've got to bring it back and so with this movie they were so upset because all the stab movies are based on actual events. <clears throat> so they're trying to create events that will bring it back yeah. full circle. And I think even Richie says in there um that the the original the the first stab movie was the best one, and that's what we're trying to get back to, which is what these filmmakers are trying to do yeah. with the the requel, which is the first scream was so great. They're trying to recreate that, which they literally call the movie Scream. Yeah, they called it Scream. So I mean, this same- is a very meta, very self aware yes. movie. Yeah. Um. So. Paramount has already announced that they're they've they've greenlit a sequel to this movie because it's, you know it's made by the time this weekend's over that's estimated it's going to make about thirty six to forty million dollars. Uh, it had twenty five million dollar budget. Couple in probably another fifty million in marketing. So this thing needs to make about a hundred million to to be profitable, and it will. Yeah, because this is just domestically. Oh yeah, horror horror plays well around the world, and, and there's not uh, much coming out over the next month. 
I would expect to see this movie hit Paramount Plus in about two to three weeks because Paramount Plus really is is starving for some some content. Some, you know, yeah. um, so I'd expect to see that on here relatively quickly. To score this movie, I would give this. I'm I'm wrestling with this one because the more I'm talking about it with you, the more I'm appreciating the movie that I saw. I did an episode. I, I already recorded an episode of Hollywood Unfiltered where I gave it kind of a five out of ten. I called it right down the middle, and I kind of want to reevaluate that and say I'm going to well, give this about a seven out of ten. Well, let me ask you this. Yes, because this plays a huge factor into the movie, which has not been done in any of the previous screen movies. What do you think about? The inclusion of Skeet Ulrich. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about that, did we? did we? not. No. no, we didn't talk about that. So uh, I thought that was a, a really original add to it. Well, Sam, our, our our main protagonist, who ends up being our main protagonist, you realize that she's literally taking antipsychotic medication because she has visions of her father, uh, who is Billy Loomis, and... He is kind of her spiritual guide. Yes. In this movie. Very, um, a beautiful mind type thing going on there. <laughs> but he, he kind of assists her in, in, in saving the day. So I don't know if we're, if we're, is, if we're, does that take away from it or add to it? I think it was because he is, it's not him in a current state. It's him. As he died yes. at the end of with screen. the scars on his face, he's you know yeah. he still has the scar on his yeah, neck. Yeah, it's and a CGI effort. Yeah, um, but apparently it's really him because he's credited. Oh, is he? He's, I, I, I watched that. the end credits and it okay. says Skeet Ulrich. So they just did the um, de aging, which is pretty normal. Now that was probably the most expensive shot in the movie. Was. Um, for a twenty five million dollar film, they probably spent five million on de aging uh, Skeet Ulrich. You know, I didn't think about that. I never thought about that. I hope that's not setting up. The next movie. Because, you know, here's the thing. It, it made money. Paramount's like, we got to do this again. And I'm like, no, no. Wait, well, I mean, wait like more you, years. Like you said, it, it sets up, you know, the next sequel. So to me, it's the trilogy, Scream 4 as the standalone, like Rogue One, whatever. And then this next set. Could be another trilogy. It could be another trilogy. Uh, I'll be on board with that. Keep the same directors in place. Yes. Keep the same writers in place. Yes. That's, I think, if you're going to do that, don't do what Star Wars did. Don't yeah. have a roadmap. Have this thing planned out if you're really going to do it. But Marvel they're not. <laughs> but they're not because Paramount just announced today. Oh, right. Well, we're happy with numbers. We've greenlit another one. So this is not part yeah. of a planned trilogy, Could unfortunately. Next, yeah. Yeah. So here's my suggestion. Let it be. Wait five years. Let it be. They're not yeah. going to. Well, I, you know, if they wait five years, it'll be, you know, on the overall Paramount timeline. They could be in college like Scream 2 was. Well, that's the thing is to make a successful sequel to this movie, you had better bring back Tara, Sam, Mindy, and Chad. Create your new legacy characters. Because if you're bringing back, even two years from now, Courtney Cox... And Nev Campbell, that ship has now sailed, in my opinion. Bring back the four surviving characters and tell their story. Yes. That's how you do it successfully. And leave out Sydney and leave yeah. out Gail. And at that point, you know, when Scream 2 hit, it was Sydney and Randy, and that was it. That was and it. And as the murders happened, Gail and Dewey came in. So there are four main characters. Yes. And this one, you start with four. And... 
I, I think you're right. I think I think they go with that formula and move it on to the next. Yeah. The the second trilogy sequel. I like what you're saying about uh, Scream Four sort of being that the standalone. And don't get me wrong, it, you can call that the remake, the reboot. I love Scream Four. Yeah, I I, I, I thought it was intelligent. And smart and great. And bring back Kirby. And bring back Kirby. Bring please. back Kirby. And she's not doing anything. Who know? I mean, at this point, no one's even confirmed that Stu's dead. It's never been in any one of the movies. And what's Stu's Matthew dead. Lillard doing these days? <laughs> he can come back. He can come back. Yeah. So awesome. All right. Well, listen, Jason. Great talking with you about the uh, about Wes Craven, about the Scream movies. I think overall, I'm going to give this a seven out of ten. What What are you going to give this? I would I would say the same. It's a it's a seven. I would love to watch it again to reconfirm, but easily no less than a seven. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So you know we've already been talking. We're uh, we're about six weeks out from the Batman movie. Oh yeah. Which. I think we're going to do a couple episodes. I think we'll we'll do an episode talking about the Batman movies, probably starting with 89's Batman all the way through, you know, the the Keatons, the Kilmores, the Kil- the, the Clooney's, <laughs> uh, the Bales, the Bales, the Batflicks. Yes. You know, and then uh, set that up for a uh, in-depth discussion on Matt Reeves, the Batman, which if I can make a prediction, looks pretty good. It looks amazing. I am all in on Robert Robert Pattinson. Yep. Which I want to. I just want to point out, like I'm old enough to remember when they announced that Michael Keaton was going to play Batman. The you want to talk about toxic fandom? This is before the internet, but Warner Brothers got thousands of letters of hate mail. Like, how dare you cast Michael Keaton? Now people are so excited that he's going to show up again in another You're iteration of Batman. Mr. Mom is Batman. Exactly. Yeah, no, I I think um, people hated the idea that Heath Ledger was going to play the Joker. I'm old enough to remember that I, they hated yes. that the guy from Ten Things I Hate About You. Yes, he's going to play the Joker. I I think um, the the truth lies in the film, and I I really I really hope that Robert Pattinson just proves everyone wrong. All I can go by is what he's done since the Twilight movies, which has just been redefine his career and show how powerful of an actor he is. And if he brings even a tenth of that to the Batman, I think this is going to probably bring up a conversation whether or not Christopher Nolan's Batman is as strong as this one. I'm I am just eager for the the opportunity to argue it. Can I say this? I am really coming around to the fact that DC has what I'm going to call a we don't give a fuck attitude. Yes. Okay. Because Marvel's sticking to a very strict plan and formula. Shit. Could DC- you imagine? Could you imagine if all of a sudden someone went, you know what? Let's just do an, another in game director's cut. Yeah. Or let's do another, let's do a brand new like, Iron movie, Iron Man movie. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, the Suicide Squad with. The, the new director's cut, Marvel would never allow that. No. It would never be – that's that would not even be a conversation to bring up at the boardroom. So, yeah, DC has they're, – they're the oddball in the group and they've got – they have got the biggest opportunity for success, but they've got to exploit it. And they've got to be and able to risk something to exploit you, it. You said something interesting about, you know, last time we recorded that they're comic books. Yeah. And guess what? DC and Marvel had different 
iterations of their characters, the different series. I watched the first episode of that new Peacemaker show on HBO Max. It was fucking awesome. Was it really? It was so it good. Like, the Suicide Squad <laughs> movie was all right. This is so much better. And it's written and directed by James Gunn. I was laughing my ass off. Oh, good. And I was having a blast with that movie. And it's it's so rated R. That's the thing and- is, you they the the difference between Disney and what DC like DC can take this in so many different directions. Yeah, they can go hard R, they can go PG thirteen, oh. they can and, and and that's and that's They've got they've got the world at their fingers and I hope that they're not looking at the monetary value to what they can provide, but they're looking at what the cinematic and overall impact is. The fact of the matter is Joker cost sixty million dollars to make. The movie made over a billion dollars. They will take more chances at the $60 million level, at the $80 million level, yeah. than Marvel will at the $300 million level. That's oh. a fact. They'll take more chances. And, and that's, that's I, I applaud to, that. Yeah, that's where they need to gamble on these directors like, you know, we talked about Pig. Yeah. Take someone like that and put them in this overall genre and show them what they can do. Yeah. I mean, just – yeah, they, and, and, they've got they've got the biggest opportunity for success or failure right now. A movie like Joker didn't have any pre visualization going on. There was no pre vis. No. It's a character study, yeah. and yeah. It, it's it, by Todd Phillips, the guy who made the Hangover movies in old school. <laughs> you know, it's brilliant. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a brilliant movie that I've only ever seen once, and I never want to watch uh, again. Watch it again. It's so it was so dark. Oh, uh, it was so dark. But once you've seen it and you understand where it's going, I mean, you are you already know where it's going. But as you watch it evolve for a second time, it's it's transformative. I, I mean, mean, Joaquin Phoenix just – he becomes the Joker. And yeah. It's just so much fun to see it, It's easily the best origin story of any comic book film I've ever seen because it's literally – the entire movie is the origin story yeah. of how he becomes the Joker. I love it. Well, we're, we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> we'll uh, Yeah. So before we wrap things up, I just want to remind everybody that you can help support the show go by going to patreon.com slash how is this movie. There you can get access to every Dana Buckler show episode early. Uh, we have a new bonus podcast on there called The Twosies, where me and my friend Bill Searcy kind of just shoot the shit for a couple hours. And longtime listeners will be happy to know that the original iteration of this podcast that was known as How Is This Movie, which was film history is coming back in February. How is this movie 2.0 where I will be doing history of just to give you a little idea of what's coming up in the next few months. I am doing historical looks at Wayne's World, at Scarface, at Goodwill Hunting and Starship Troopers just to kick things off. So that's patreon.com slash how is this movie. You can follow me on Twitter at Dana Buckler show. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Dana Buckler. I'm also on Instagram at the Dana Buckler. And if you want to email me, you can do so at the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com with any questions or comments. So Jason, thank you as always, my friend. Awesome. Great time. And we'll, we'll be doing this soon. Yeah. All right. And so everybody listening, my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.